0: I think a lot of the bounce back uh, that we saw in the month of April is, can be attributed simply to just very oversold conditions, um, and then you couple that with some very aggressive moves by the Fed uh, and other central banks around the, war, around the world. Um, you get some hope uh, that parts of the economy will reopen, and boom—you know—you get a nice <clears throat> 20, 25% pop. the Ballast Office in
1: Lexington, Kentucky. Welcome to The Ballast Life, a series of conversations highlighting
2: respected professionals, community leaders, and important topics that are necessary to achieving
3: financial cohesion. Hi, everyone. John Boardman here, founder and CEO of Ballast, and I'm thrilled today to be recording our Advocate Roundtable podcast. We'll be presenting this both in video and audio form. Joined today by Andy Reynolds, who's partner and COO, Uh, Brian Burton, who is partner and director of Portfolio Strategy, Cameron Hamilton, partner and director of Financial Planning, and Frank Yoswick, who is uh, director of Estate Planning and Tax. So today, um, you know, we have recorded a few of these uh, podcasts and videos and commentaries, I should say, up up through the, uh, the midst of this coronavirus crisis, and it feels a little bit like a baseball game. It's just a little difficult to tell you which inning we're in, uh, are we in the, in the early innings? Or are we coming to an end? And I think so much of what we wanted to talk about today is the range of outcomes, um, because really we are looking at an undefined uh, outcome here, uh, both in the magnitude of the issues created by this crisis, but also the amount of time it takes uh, for these issues to resolve. So Andy, I wanna start with you. Um, how would you assess the current state of the economy and where we're headed over the next few weeks and months?
1: Yeah, I think the the current state of the economy can be judged in many different ways. Um, statistically, I think if you look at the numbers, it would be difficult to say we're not in one of the worst environments we've ever been in, a depression-like era. You know, you look at Q1 of 2020 GDP and it's negative 4.8%, and we're expecting Potentially 20% negative GDP Q2. We're looking at 30 million unemployed. Uh, potentially getting to 15 to 30% um, unemployment rate. So statistically, it, it's a very alarming time. Um, but when you take a step back and you and you look at where we may truly be, uh, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of reason to be positive and negative um you know if you, if you look at the variations in sectors airlines cruise ships entertainments they're, they're struggling significantly um, and probably will over the next little while if you look at tech you know and and whatnot it's, it's doing okay um i was talking to a fedex driver and, and had the same conversation with a contracted amazon driver and, and they're more positive and grateful um, but more positive than than they've ever been they're they're busier working more hours seeing more people hired within their organizations due to the change in the way our environment's working Um, Manufacturing's doing okay relative Um, you know healthcare it it, interesting thing for healthcare you know we have a lot of physician clients and um, we have some who are working their tails off and barely keeping up and we have others who haven't been to work in quite a while so, you know, it's, it's really not an economy that we can judge on a certain set of criteria. Um, it's, we are in an unprecedented time, like most crises are, um, but an unprecedented time where we've hit the pause button. And as we push the play button back, which we're starting to do, it's really going to be indicative of where we truly are. Because I, I don't know anybody really knows where we're at right now. We know that people have been laid off. We don't know whether that's temporary. Um, we hope it's temporary. Um, we know that there's been a lot of government stimulus that's helped prop up the economy and propped up people and consumers, which has certainly helped. Um, but you know, given all of the unknowns, um, we, we really don't know where we are. I think positively, we're, we're definitely not as bad as we could be. Um, we could be in a whole lot worse place easily. Um, we're not in the best case scenario either, but we're somewhere in between, you know, really the next, the next four to eight weeks, I think are going to be very telling of of truly where this economy is and how quickly people are willing to get back out to a normal environment and get back out, hopefully safely and, and doing it responsibly, but getting back out to start to consume again and live somewhat of a normal life again. It's not going to be quick, um, but, but. I think it'll be interesting um, to see how that, that all comes out. So current state of the economy, you know, we can look at statistics and, and whatnot, but I don't know that those truly tell the story, um, but I also don't know that anybody exactly knows what the narrative is right now, other than there's a lot of unknowns and the next couple of weeks are going to be very telling of, of where this economy truly is. Yeah, I think there's... There, there's
3: this current economic state that we're in, in the middle of this shutdown, and then this sort of transitional economy we're going to go into when we're opening back up. And then I think there's just so many questions about what the actual economy can look like once this is somewhat in the rear view mirror. Uh, Brian, I'm gonna throw it to you um, more specifically about the markets. <clears throat> I think some people, I think we would be included in that group, sort of pleasantly surprised with April's market performance, particularly after you know March just being so treacherous. Um, uh, what do you attribute sort of the market activity to? Um, really looking back at March and and then
0: the somewhat somewhat of the recovery of April. Yeah, the move we saw, you know, from mid February through the the first half of March was, you know. Pretty significant uh, drop. I think that's attributed to several things. Obviously, mostly the the virus. But as far as the bounce that we saw in April, um, you know, I think it's a couple things. First of all, you you have to think back to that time when the markets were in free fall. So we we pretty much ran the full cycle of investor emotions, uh, which normally can take you know years to go through that entire cycle. We ran that cycle in what five or six weeks. Um, you know, markets were at all-time highs in mid-February. Um, there certainly was some euphoria uh, out there. Uh, the momentum stocks were were going were going up so fast. and um, you know, and that was before the virus really gained significant traction in the u s. Um, but as that threat increased, that euphoria quickly turned, you know into anxiety, fear. Uh, panic panic, and then ultimately um, what felt like despondency uh, by late March. And you know, typically that that starts to form at least a short term bottom uh, with some capitulation selling. Markets were opening limit down. Uh, We saw circuit breakers triggering almost daily. It it started unbelievably it started to feel somewhat normal uh, when the market would be paused for 15 minutes. So, you know, I think a lot of the bounce back uh, that we saw in the month of April was can be attributed simply to just very oversold conditions, um, and then you couple that with some very aggressive moves by the Fed uh, and other central banks around the, wor- around the world. Um, you get some hope uh, that parts of the economy will reopen, and boom, you know, you get a nice <clears throat> twenty to twenty-five percent pop. Also, it's important don't forget that for weeks. Uh, We were fed bad news from a fire hydrant. Um, It it was very difficult to find any sense of positive news anywhere. So, when we started to get these glimmers of hope, you know, the markets were ready to bounce back, and that's exactly what what we saw.
3: Do you attribute any of the severity of the pullback to 2019 being so positive?
0: Absolutely. You know, we saw a huge run up. Towards the end of the year, um, and it wasn't based on valuations. You know, we it, it looked it looked overbought at that time, so not surprising to see you know a portion of that pullback uh, be attributed to just overvaluations. Yeah, yeah.
3: Cam, I want to throw it to you. Um, you know, we we hear so much and read so much about the consumer being so important to our economy. Obviously, the this crisis has hit the hit the consumer hard with you know unemployment numbers just at historic levels and increasing each week um what how do you how are you looking at the consumer right now and what do you expect the consumer to look like coming out of this period
2: yeah thanks john i think uh i think about the consumers and kind of different slices i had a conversation last week with the director of tourism in Lexington and her job is to get people out bring people and you know get people spending largely she's a you know an economic development person and she said the people she's talking to a lot like us who are lucky enough to still be employed are kind of making that post shutdown bucket list of the restaurants they want to visit and the you know the places they want to go and I think for a, a lot of people, uh, you know, especially the, the types of clients that we're working with, uh, where many of them are retired, uh, or also a lot of uh, white collar people who have been lucky enough to stay employed, um, you know, there'll be a big bounce back in their consumption, uh, you know, Q3, Q4, hopefully. Um, but the, the, we need to be cautious to not tell ourselves a story, that those people are the engine of the consumption economy. And I was kind of curious about this this week. So I went and looked up the uh, BLS uh, consumer expenditure numbers from 18 and the bottom 50% of incomes, uh, which is all households below about 62,000 a year in income in 18, they make up like 30% Uh, of entertainment spending, you know, 35% of fuel. So, you know, that bottom half of the economy who I think we assume is living paycheck to paycheck, um, for them to get back consuming like they were, uh, I think every week this goes on, the damage that they have on those households is more severe. Um, And I've also been following a study A consumer sentiment study about how long people predict uh, that the shutdown will last and they've done it every week and the estimates started at you know median of four weeks and now it's gone up to eight weeks so you know i think people are seeing more data and making the decision for themselves when it's time for me to go out and and live a normal consumption lifestyle Uh, and you know i'm sure Home Depot's doing great because I've been you know doing projects around my house, but I'm not talking to a lot of sit-down restaurant owners who are excited about the prospects for their business in July. So yeah, I think there's definitely going to be winners and losers in the uh, consumer economy, but I think it is really dependent on um, you know how federal and state governments handle opening back up, and then how that. Trickles down to you know the the base of our economy, um, and and how how deep the the pain is for those households getting back to consuming on their normal level. There's yeah, an think,
1: interesting there's an interesting video um, uh, interview on sixty minutes from Sunday about a catering woman who you know she was talking about when she would be back to normal, and she took you through a stepwise process. You know first the government has to open up and allow her to work. And then people have to be willing to go out and um, be in groups again. And then people have to be willing to take a risk to invite people to come to a big event. And then people have to be willing to go to that big event. So you think about that and the consumer thought process behind that. It's 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 really interesting, kind of how those dominoes will fall.
3: Yeah, I think that realization—you know—the shutdown, as difficult as it seemed, really was the easy part. The reopening is appears to be the hardest part because you obviously have differing opinions, and what seems to be in some cases sort of the goalpost moving on what it's going to require us to to be able to open up. Um, It's—I think that probably is attributed attributes to the that extending timeline people are expecting at this point frank andy mentioned some of the sectors and industries that would be impacted by this um, you know what are your thoughts um on s- certain industries then you know how this situation could you know temporarily or perma- permanently alter you know how they look
4: yeah thank you i i think that there's going to be a whole segment of industries I'm kind of looking at them at like the stay-at-home industries that have really gotten a lot of um, exposure and and people really using them lately because they kind of have to. I mean, I think you, you can break it down into your social and work categories like us right now on a Zoom call. That's become normal for people going to the office and, you know, talking with their families and staying in touch with friends and, and using other different kinds of apps like a house party type app where you can still Meet with people and see people, even though you have to be doing your social distancing. And I think that's part of it that's going to get um, get more popular and stay popular. I think too the food industry. If you're looking at things like a Blue Apron or a Hello Fresh, I think those are going to start becoming much more popular with people having to cook at home instead of being able to go out to the restaurant. Um, you know, obviously the takeout is, is still a thing, but I think people are going to be cooking a lot more from home, and um, that's going to be an industry that's, that's being forced on a lot of people now that will stick. Entertainment, you know, always the, the Netflixes and the Amazon primes, but that's not really new. I think that that's just going to continue as is. At home fitness, you know, you look at something like a Peloton or even, you know, local gyms around town, they're having to get creative with how what to do with their current members. Um, and I know the gym that we belong to is reaching out and saying, hey, we'll do virtual. Personal training so that they can keep their business going and you can continue on with doing the fitness uh, that you want to do. You know, and I've even seen or or heard actually on the radio um, interesting and creative commercials. I heard one of a car dealership that said, If you need an oil change, we will send someone to your house to pick up your car. We'll take it in, we'll change the oil, we'll clean it, we'll sanitize it, and then we'll drop it back off for you. So it's the whole contactless delivery of an oil change, which is you know, fantastic. And and think how convenient that could be for if you've got to go to the office and work all day on a quote unquote normal situation. How great is that um, in terms of convenience? And I think there's going to be a lot of creative solutions like that for this interesting time that will stick. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I think people sometimes underestimate human ingenuity and, and their ability to evolve in the middle of situations like this. So um, i I think every company I've been just blown away with what companies are willing to try to do just to kind of keep the doors open. It's 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 really inspiring in so many ways because you know this hit them out of nowhere and and they have limited resources and they're they're making the best of it and and hopefully their business will be stronger for it. Assuming they can weather weather this period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy, let's get back to the economy. Um, you know the I think the the most recent major crisis that most investors have dealt with was the financial crisis. And I think there's just an immediate tendency to try to draw comparisons between that period and now. How do you look at that period of time, call it 2007 to 2009, 10, versus this window that we're experiencing now? I mean, obviously we're in the early periods of this one and that was a much longer period of time, but what what, what comparisons would you draw today?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, we could do an entire presentation on that question alone, um, but kind of high level couple things. I think the way you phrase the question is important. This period of time versus that time. And, and, you know, I think we are in a window of time, like you mentioned here right now that at some point, this will be behind us. Um, you know, sooner the better. But at some point, we will have a vaccine or a treatment or, or something. Um, we have the brightest in the world working on that. And I think most agree that that it will be solved at some point. You know, the financial crisis was much different. Um, the financial crisis was uh, a, a very scary time of what our infrastructure was built on from the banking system was, was on the brink of collapse and, you know, the... Things going away, um, and 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 that was that was very um, very different, very scary. Um, you know, right now it, there are similarities. You know, there's the uncertainty, and and it kind of came out of this hidden risk, like the financial crisis. There's this hidden risk of subprime lending and what people thought were safe investments, just like this hidden risk of this invisible virus that we could all be exposed today and not know it um and and so that just generally there's a significant fear in in people today um markets you know in both we saw a very quick collapse um this financial collapse was a whole lot faster um but that one was pretty quick too and 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 both pretty deep um the fear of just not knowing what the banking system would look like versus today, not knowing if you and your loved ones are gonna be healthy in two weeks from now. You know, there, there's, there's those are similar. PE ratios are high in both, as Brian alluded to. You know, Sheller's PE ratio, which maybe is a better one to look at today based on um, not really knowing what earnings are gonna look like in the future. Um, you know, we're at 22 in 2020 and 25 in 2008. Um, Ultimately, they're both unprecedented times, but I would argue almost every major event like this is unprecedented. You know, you just look at the most recent ones and this, you know, pandemic, fairly unprecedented. Uh, Financial crisis, fairly unprecedented. The dot-com bubble, you know, we've never experienced that before. Um, So very similar in the way I think any type of major, economic disruption happen. But fundamentally, I think very different. I think fundamentally, you know, we're the consumer is in a much better place today. Banks are in a much better place today. Um, You know, the economy is, although maybe on the verge of, of getting a little excessive, I don't think we're there yet. We weren't seeing a ton of significant risk-taking. You know, we're, we're definitely not in the trough of the market or the economy, but I don't think we're we're where we have that silly money flowing yet. Um, you know, th- this is different in that it's a self-made economic pause. And we could, if there's a treatment tomorrow, there would be no comparison. You know, we could all up and back up and keep on rolling. And, and there may be, you know, we don't know when that will happen. Um so there could be a very swift recovery, whereas the financial crisis was very slow, and you know, m- many would define recovery as many years later. Um, the Fed, and we'll talk about the Fed, I mean, a little bit, but the Fed has is now experienced with how to react to these things, and and ready to, to make big moves. Um, you know, the one difference I think businesses may be a little bit more exposed this time. Um, but again, the, the big thing that I see different is just the fundamental impact of collapse of, of a banking system versus a pause. I don't think you can really compare the two other than they're all unprecedented. and how we work ourselves out of them are, are going to be difficult. Um, but I don't think it was the reckless behavior that we were experiencing in 2008 versus today.
3: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, that period threatened the existence of some of our largest companies, which by all accounts, I mean, we've seen some corporate bankruptcy, but for the most part, it looks like most of these companies will be able to weather this. We're dealing it with, from the other end of the spectrum, from a business standpoint, it's our small businesses that um, are going to be, that have been immediately impacted. And it's like, what kind of economic damage will that create that will flow through? And to your point, you know, one was really human created by risk and excessive um, just greed. And this one, you know, you can't really point a finger at anyone. This just this is just sort of a, a natural occurrence that happened that we're all
1: having to deal with. It's 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 quite unique. I think um, also to your point about greed, you know, in today's environment there's no finger pointing. It's it's well there's starting to be bigger picture finger pointing, <laughs> but within the US there's there's no finger pointing. You know, it's it's nobody's fault. It wasn't Wall Street or you know, corporate America or, you know, whatever it's, we're, we're all in this together. And, and I think ultimately that helps us get out of it quicker. Um, you know, there's been so much kindness that we've seen uh, publicly, we've seen privately within our communities and our clients. And, you know, it, it, it really, uh, it's, it's very different in the cause and people's reaction to it um, at this point at least. Yeah, good point.
2: Andy, I'll just hop in there. And when you talk about kindness and community and everything, uh, one thing I'm looking at and having a lot of conversations about is the nonprofit sector. And they are really having difficulty right now. Uh, you know, people don't have the certainty to donate. And then also, a lot of the fundraising activity and events that happen this time of year through the fall might not happen. So, I, just a little plug for anybody if you're, you know, thinking about giving uh it's a good time to do it and we can we're always happy to talk to people about the best way to do that yeah
3: yeah good idea brian i want to ask you um you mentioned the fed's response to this and sort of can evolving response i feel like every every week or so we hear some new action they've taken um do you think they're done or do you think, do you expect further action? What action would, could you see coming from them um, over the coming weeks and months?
0: Yeah, the Fed, I mean, the Fed's definitely taken a very aggressive approach uh, to this period of time. Um, I mean, it basically cut interest rates to near zero. Um, they have instituted several um, liquidity programs. Into finance, they were absolutely necessary uh, keeping financial markets uh, functioning properly. Um, Even the most liquid market in the world, US Treasuries, was having liquidity issues, uh, and the Fed stepped in very quickly to shore those up. Um, They've also been purchasing Treasury and and mortgage backed securities, um, and even most recently, uh, jumped in as a buyer in the high yield bond space. So, uh, some unprecedented moves certainly by uh, the Fed. As as for future moves, you know it's 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 hard to predict. I don't think that we'll see uh, negative interest rates in the U.S., um, but I, I don't think it can be completely ruled out. Um, but more importantly, I think I think we'll continue to see the Fed um, flood the financial system with liquidity. Um, Credit is the lifeblood of our economy. Um, It doesn't doesn't matter if interest rates are zero, if consumers can't get a loan, right? So, and, and, you know, we won't know how successful these measures have been um, that they've taken until much further down the road. But we can say that the responses they've made to this point um, have definitely improved sentiment. uh, And that has a major influence on people being able to take on risk uh, going forward. So, so definitely some important things that they've done is, is for, as far as the, the fiscal side, um, the response there has also been been quite strong. We've seen a $2 trillion stimulus package. Um, you know, they includes several different, uh, different items, a uh, loan facility that's helping some of the more effective, in, effective industries. Um, we've seen direct cash payments to individuals um So, loans for small businesses and even expanded unemployment benefits, so the governments have shown markets um, they would intervene as much as necessary you know to keep them operating well um, and i, I don 't think they 're done uh, like, you know i 'm not sure what the next package is going to look like I think there 's something on the table actually currently uh, for another f- fiscal stimulus package. Uh, so no, wouldn't be surprised at all if we, if we see um, even more additional stimulus down the road.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's easy to nitpick issues with some of the you know, fiscal stimulus, um, but you have to applaud the expediency of the response. And I think you know, going back to what Andy was talking about, one of the issues was just the response was so slow, particularly from the Fed, Um, and there wasn't much action from a fiscal response during that time, then I think that may have been what helped sort of reverse sentiment, at least temporarily, um, you know, back at the end of March. Um, Cam, so Brian referenced rates being quite low. They've they've been low. We've been telling people they're low, and now they're lower. Um, This obviously has a direct impact on investors. both for savers, cash holders, um, and uh, fixed income investors. Um, why don't you kind of give some details about how we're handling that internally um, for clients?
2: Yeah, it's not a uh, it's not a good time to be a saver, is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I've I've been watching CD rates and you know short term, less than a year CDs that we were getting two percent on. They're like twenty five basis points, you know, a quarter of a percent now. Um, in my career, and I think it will, just any time in 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 memory, uh, the difference between what you're yielding on, these different fixed income instruments, treasuries, of any any length, uh, the difference between that and cash has has never been smaller. Uh, so you know we we need to think about. The cost benefit for our clients on what are we gaining in yield um, and and risking in volatility of price because uh, when rates came down uh, you know through Fed, swift swift uh, Fed action early on in this um, existing bonds uh, look way more attractive and so their prices are elevated and rates can't go. And much lower. You know, Brian talked about the prospect of negative rates, but uh, if you're betting on how far rates can swing one way or the other, uh, I think it's safe to say that there's a lot more room to the upside than there is to the downside. Not, not a prediction of time or anything, but, uh, you know, we need to think for our clients about the price of of the bonds they're owning. And so, you know, as rates came down, we were making that cost benefit analysis and and on a lot of them uh, as the as the values popped up we decided to uh, get rid of some especially treasuries um, and move to cash and uh you know we're kind of thinking and we kind of always have thought about cash as a portion of the fixed income uh you know just the less risky side of the portfolio and i think that that's definitely a leading part of the philosophy today um you know so we're thinking about those all together and constantly evaluating that cost benefit. So what are you getting in yield? Um, and, and then what are you risking in price volatility? Um, and, uh, you know, are your fixed income positions a place to preserve capital? And we're going to keep making that evaluation as we, you know, look for rates to normalize a little bit and maybe you'll find a, an entry point we're comfortable with in in some of those positions we trim, but, you know, I think that that's something that is going to be a topic we're paying very close attention to on the portfolio management side, uh, you know, indefinitely this year.
3: Andy, you made some good points about cash and liquidity and, you know, what that represents for for clients. I think sometimes there's some confusion around why we hold cash, why we hold fixed income. Do you want to Give a couple points related to that
1: yes yeah, so i think you know ultimately what's our role and what's our job for clients it's to help be a proactive voice of wisdom using a methodical approach so you know to cam's point about the risk versus reward you know if you look at um some of these bonds and and the, and the Yield, as Cameron's mentioning, the yield that you're going to return um, as a positive for owning that position versus the risk of <clears throat> rates going back up, um, even modestly, and losing principal protection. Um, you know, it's it's a challenging time. I, I tell everybody it's more difficult in the bond market than the equity markets right now. And, and it has been for, for a while um, because ultimately, what those bonds are to get you some type of lower risk yield, but also to serve as the ballast in the portfolio. And when you don't have the shorter term bonds and you don't have the, the lower end of the spectrum in a really safe spot, um, you really got to just question stability of what those bonds provide for people. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I think we made a good move and, and just kind of, Side-stepping out of the bond market for for a portion, not everything, for but for a portion for clients, um, and it's not that we're trying to time the market. It's not that we're true, that we our crystal ball all of a sudden is charged up and ready to go. Um, it's more so getting back to the the risk reward analysis, and, and the reward's so small at this moment um, that you know we 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 just thought that that was a prudent thing to do. Um, and that's not always going to be the case. We're just in a, a unique environment that could change tomorrow. I mean, I think that's one of the things also that led to that decision was things were moving so quickly. Um, you know, we, we, for the moment, we just wanted to sidestep. And then additionally, you know, I, I think we're all fairly optimistic about where we are with this thing. Um, you know, this morning I was reading an article. Goldman Sachs was called for a bottom already. Um, in the economy and in the markets, Um, you know, but this could impact anybody in many different ways. So we just want to also responsibly provide a little bit of liquidity for people. Again, letting that lower end um, of the risk spectrum serve as purpose of of having the liquidity option, if someone needs it. And if there is another pullback, you know, giving us some dry powder to potentially put some more money to work as well. Yeah, and just from the
2: planning side, Andy, uh, when you talk about that, and, and when we look at these low yields, I think the trap there is people say, well, maybe I should just be looking for high yielding equities and, and moving a portion of that into blue chips, but we need to always make sure that we have ample liquidity you know, for whatever the client's scenario is. So we're trying not to, to fall in that trap that I think uh, a lot of
1: consumers retail investors might that's right we don't want to be chasing yield or chasing returns yeah. and and you a huge trap right now you know to your point going and trying to get a cd in today's rate. i remember less than a year ago probably about a year ago looking at a five-year cd paying three and a half percent it's crazy and, and that was really good i don't know how they're doing that but um you know now it's a third of that is that yeah
3: it's uh and and relative to previous periods three and a half percent looked pretty low you know it's definitely all relative for sure Um, and hopefully when this clears you see some normalization i mean even if it's just slight normalization of interest rates um energy prices being in a similar boat you know you hope you just see some of those things just drift up in price when people feel like there is a little bit more of a you know a blue sky out there frank i want to throw it to you you know low rates great for real estate investors typically um home buyers home owners who want to refinance what are your thoughts on this environment sort of how it's going to impact real estate during this window we're dealing with but also in the in the wake, uh, or, or I should say after this, this passes.
4: Yeah, sure. So, especially for the, uh, the homeowner and, um, you know, the first time buyer or, or the whatever, second, third time buyer, the low rate, the, the lower rates on the mortgages are fantastic. If you have the opportunity to refinance and it makes sense, you know, there's some, definitely some really low rates out there today, um, in terms of being the, in terms of being the owner occupier, if you're looking at real estate, though, in terms of being an investor, I think what you're talking about, the two different windows of the the right now, short term, and then the longer term, there's some things that you got to keep in mind. If you're looking to be a real estate investor to, to buy like a single family home and flip it in the short term, you got to think about, well, getting people in there to do some work on that place and, and fixing it up if that needs to happen. Chances are, if it's a flip, there's going to need to be some work done. Make sure that you're going to be able to get somebody in there to do the work Um, because everybody might be staying home, worrying about the virus. Once the place is fixed up and if you're ready to sell it, we're seeing that a lot of potential home buyers are not really uh, too keen on going out and walking through a stranger's house. You know, they may want to stay home where they know that they're in their safe spot. and It's clean and they're not really sure what's going on over here. And, and, you know, for a few weeks or months that may be um, throw a little wrench in the operation. In terms of being a real estate investor in the short term to be a landlord, a lot of your tenants might be losing their income. Um, So your income stream might have to be adjusted in terms of, you know, lowering rents to let people stay there or, you know, maybe you can find a, a way to come to some kind of an agreement with your tenants. But I think that's something that you need to really consider. I think longer term in the residential space for being either flips or landlord, I think things kind of normalize out. But then when you think about the longer term landlords in the commercial space, And then, you know, again, what we're doing right now on Zoom and what every other company in America is doing on Zoom, a lot of businesses are going to realize, hey, I don't need three floors in in the main building down on Main Street after this all clears up. Uh, Maybe I only need one floor. Maybe I only need half the space or whatever it was. Um, So I think that longer term, there definitely could be some shakeups in the uh, commercial real estate industry for sure.
3: Yeah, the, uh, I read a study, and I may butcher it a little bit, but it was discussing Amazon's projected growth curve over the next 10 years. And they said this window is likely to speed that up to the next three to four years. If you think about the implications on retail, for instance, you know, that obviously was happening. And if you look at a lot of the companies that are going through bankruptcy protection, they're not shutting down, but what they're going to do is they're going to, you know, figure out some way to, to deal with the debt that they have and reduce the number of stores that they have and break leases and things like that. And and it just feels like every every company is now going to look at this window as a risk that now exists. And it even though it may not repeat itself during our lifetimes, it now exists as a risk. And I think people will position their businesses accordingly and think about how can I run it without all of the space that i was leasing before and potentially without the number of people and the, you know those are the things i think that we just won't know mm-hmm. until this until this plays itself out
1: i think just to interject i think one observation that um we had as a family which which was somewhat alarming um you know getting back to the the home gym um i was looking for weights for my life, and yeah, obviously, the only ones I could find for a five pound weight was about $28 from some medical supply company, um, which I did not purchase. Um, but I, I just got to be thinking, where do I even go to shop? You know, I, I'm so addicted to e commerce. I went on Amazon's website, I went on Target's website, I went on Walmart's website. And then I kind of paused and I was like, where else do I go? Um, and, and I think this is going to further deepen that. I don't know if it's addiction is the right word, but, um, we're just, we've, we as a society have become so accustomed to, to not only being able to go online and click and get something, but also to be able to get it in a couple of days, you know, th- this is an unprecedented time where in the, from what I can remember, I know, you know, 10 years ago is different, but in the most recent memory, if you want something within a couple of days, you can get it, you know, there's some things you can't get right now, and and that's you know it's 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 an interesting uh, phenomenon. We talk about commercial and retail. I think that this is going to change that space.
3: Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's a great way to to wrap it up. I think talking about just being able to do simple things that maybe we've all taken for granted. And maybe that's the most positive thing that comes out of this window is that, um, you know, we've all, we all live, the, I love what Warren Buffett says. It says, even the middle-class median income individual in this country lives a better lifestyle than John D. Rockefeller did. Just based on lifestyle and and, and uh, quality of life, I should say, um, that we all, um, I think appreciate, but appreciate more, uh, more so than ever uh, when, when periods of like, like this happen. And, you know, we're all optimists by nature. I think, um, that is, is a, is a great quality in a, in an investment group because we are looking to the future and we have to have faith in, um, the, the companies that we're invested in and their ability to navigate periods like this. So I think it will be society's finest hour. But it's going to take us, um, it's going to be a, a treacherous ride, I think, until we until we get out the other end of it. But I, much like what you were saying, Andy, and others, um, you know, we will get through this. And um, the important thing is, you know, we're financial planners at our core. And uh, although the next year is a really important period for anybody, we're most... Um, concerned about the next 10 20 and 30 years for our clients if not longer in some cases so uh, it's important for us to keep our eye on the prize of what 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 our clients really need and overreacting in an environment like this um, is likely the worst thing that we could possibly do so uh, we want to thank everybody for listening today we've been experimenting with different formats and as I said in the intro we will be sending this out um, the video as well as a, a podcast audio stream. So we appreciate you listening today and please give us any feedback, um, on, um, any way we can improve, uh, these, um, these commentaries from time to time. Thank you.